Hello, and welcome back to the Multiple Theory Podcast from the University of Toronto Jungian Association. This is the second part of an interview held with the University of Toronto's Corey Lewis. In the first part of our conversation, we introduced the question of the meaning of life and dealt with some relevant work from the history and philosophy of science, as well as other streams of philosophy. In this portion of our conversation, we tackle what it means to lead a wholesome life, what some constraints are around our capacity to make meaning, and finally, how the meaning of life is or isn't like the meaning of a sentence. We hope you enjoy. For some reason, while we were talking about this, I started thinking about Buddhism. So I, I started picturing somebody saying, okay, you know, I'm, I'm in this safe, comfortable environment. I've got all these urges to do things, you know, to go take up a hobby, cause myself problems. You've got two responses there. You could either take up the hobby and get, and get embroiled in life, or you could be like, I think the best thing is to kill off those parts of me that are causing trouble. Um, so release, you know, like, oh, I, re- I really want to be, you know, playing poker. You got two options there. You could either use your po- poker playing abilities, or you could uh, quiet the part of yourself that wants to play poker, letting it go, be, become become non attached to it, let it all go. Um, so, in, in, imagine a hypothetical where you know you had a you had all of the switches and dials that controlled your innermost desires and drives. Um, would you find it? I wonder what people, how the experience would be if somebody says, okay, well, you know, I got my basics taken care of. I'm just going to turn all of my other drives down to zero. I don't want to explore. I don't want to, I don't want to be confronted with problems. I don't want to care about novelty. Um, I'll just dial those all down to zero and just sort of crank up my enjoyment of Netflix and, and pick out pizza. That doesn't strike me as a very meaningful life. Um, although it might, I don't know, maybe the person, maybe that person would find it perfectly satisfying, perfectly meaningful, but there seems, there does seem to be something kind of missing from that as a life, even, even if there weren't these conflicting parts of you. And I do, th- I do think that there are, there are viable techniques for, um, letting go of parts of you that are causing you difficulty. Um, and that's, I, I do think that's, you can see that in very, very intense kind of like monk level Buddhist practice. Somebody's like, okay, well, for me, the most important thing is to stop suffering. And I know what's causing me suffering. It's my embroilment in the world. So I'll just become unembroiled. And I think that's what they probably get out of that is a a profound sense of wholeness um, because they've let go of so many parts of themselves that were what they call unwholesome parts of themselves that were causing them trouble. Um, I don't know if that strikes me as it's certainly not something I've chosen for myself. Um, no, no judgment. If, if that's your path, absolutely no judgment, but I, I don't, for me, that doesn't strike me as sufficient for finding a meaningful life. Mm. Okay. I think that's a great place to start. So we have this issue with the monks. The monk life is seems unsatisfying to you in some way. Hmm. I think, I would feel the same way. It seems a little bit unsatisfying to me. Um, I guess the first question I would raise there is what exactly are the monks doing when they are, you know, apparently letting go of these aspects of themselves? My suspicion is, I I can't prove this, but I'll, I'll put the claim forward and see how you feel about it. My suspicion is that they are on some level and to some extent uh, recognizing 
uh, all of the, the parts of themselves, all of their desires that they have that they perhaps weren't even aware of. I mean, you know, we have plenty of accounts of people having these uh, mystical experiences, you know, while meditating where they, they have all of this onrush of visions, all this stuff that's bubbling up from the unconscious that they didn't even know was there. And they, you know, are, are acknowledging it and letting it into their consciousness. My claim would be that I think that represents a certain kind of integration, but I think it also shows us what is maybe um, lacking in the vision of integration that, that Jung gives us. Mm. I'm not 100% sure about this point, but so it, it, in his most basic texts, I think that uh, Jung says essentially uh, we have you know, the ego, which is essentially the whole of our consciousness, and then uh, beyond that is the unknown. And we have the unknown within our own psyche and the unknown in the external environment. And Jung really focuses on this idea that uh, integration amounts to dealing with the unknown within our own psyche, which is what we call the unconscious hmm. or preconscious or, or what have you. Uh, but of course, that leaves this whole other arena of the unknown beyond our psyche, whatever is considered to be this external unknown. And I think this has been a real question for me in order to have a meaningful life. Is it enough to just be encountering this internal unknown? And when and how do I have to bring that up against the external unknown? Yeah. Jung's model, I think, is that you kind of have to do the internal work first, and then you can go out into the world. I don't know how I feel about that. And I'm curious how, how you feel about it as well and how you feel about this, this whole sort of framing of the problem. I think that's a great framing. I think I, what we've got at, at minimum, uh, we can say that we've got two different images of, of what integration looks like. Um, mm -hmm. the, Buddhist, the Buddhist model and the Jungian model. And Jung was certainly more externally engaged than uh, a recluse in the sitting under a mango tree or whatever, right? So he, one of the things that Jung thinks that we need to integrate is the um, uh, introvert-extrovert axis, right? So um, for introverts, uh, like me, whose natural predisposition is to maybe like sit in my basement and play video games. Um, one of the things that you do when you integrate the personality is, is to figure out how to be a little bit extroverted and, uh, and just absolutely vice versa for the, for the extrovert. Their, their integration is finding ways to, to build interiority and to learn to learn to be by themselves and that kind of thing. Um, so for, I think for Jung's model of the psyche, uh, in either I for either type of person, you're absolutely having to interact with the world at some point. Um, Prof. Ann gave us a really nice model, actually, of the arc of somebody's life. So, in you know your the first half of your life, you are basically having to find your way in the world. You have to establish yourself in the world. You have to like go do stuff and and interact with your community and make some money, of course. Um, and then you reach this kind of the peak of the, the peak of the arc, which I think I'm, I'm 40 now. So I think I'm around the, I'm around the peak here. Um, and then the second half of life is sort of working in your, you, you're sort of thrust back into your interior spaces. So it's a time mm -hmm. for digestion and reflection and elaboration of the things that you sort of hacked out in the first half. And 
uh, that's a kind of reassuring picture for us uh, introverts because that means that the, we're doing the hard part now. The first half is the hard part where you have to like go out into the world and do stuff. Gross. Um, and the second, the second half is our sort of home turf where we're, right. we're um, reflected back and we're sort of like curve, gently curve back into the interior world and do that work. This is apparently much harder for extroverts because the first half they're kicking butt. They're like, yeah, doing stuff in the world. That's what I like. And then they hit midlife. And this is the classic midlife crisis where suddenly you've been doing stuff half for your whole life. And then you start getting sort of drawn into your inner spaces and start thinking, oh man, I have to deal with my feelings too. Having two boats wasn't enough. I have to actually like have, have an interior world as well. Uh, so being for, for an extrovert, it can be, if they haven't already, if they haven't sort of done anticipatory work mm -hmm. in the first half of their life, it can be very, very, that transition can be very, very rough. Mm. Um, I'm glad that you brought up that point because I think uh, it shows how in some ways um, I had the Jungian position kind of reversed. Uh, oh. We often forget that, I guess for Jung, often his psychology starts in the midlife. Um, when people are going toward this inward work, um, whereas in fact, I guess his view of the whole life would be that often it's the, it's the external integration that is happening first. Then we have to go through this period of, of doing the internal work before we move to the external again. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, thank you. I think that that is a nice clarification. Um, I guess the question of me, for me is, is maybe that I find it still a little bit unsatisfying the degree to which uh, these different forms of work are, are separated mm. uh that the mm. internal seems to be so divorced from the external to some extent just in the way that jung often phrases these things mm -hmm. uh yeah i guess i'm wondering uh how how you feel about that how that matches up with your own view of what makes for a meaningful life etc yeah yeah um i think i agree i agree entirely that these are thinking about them as Thinking about the internal and external as, as straightforwardly separate is definitely not the right way to go. And I, I think that's one of the useful things that the maybe the existentialists gave us, which is that, you know, the world doesn't, you know, the world doesn't just present tasks and problems to you. The world doesn't come labeled like it's not it's not like a video game where like there's a there's a very we're, we're deceived by the video game narrative because there's a series of tasks that you're meant to. To complete mm -hmm. in the game and they're just sort of there they're just objectively there and you just encounter them whereas that's not what going out into the world and doing your thing looks like for humans we decide what our goals are we we are goal makers and are we can flexibly change our goals so in that sense we are we are projecting goals onto the world and if you're not aware of the ways in which you're doing that, it can look like the world just has tasks. My job mm -hmm. is to make money and have a family and, and be whatever. Um, but those are, those are things that you haven't, you have made those, you and your culture in, in collusion together have made those the goal, the goals which you pursue and you have the freedom to restructure those goals as, as you see fit kind of thing. So it's, mm. and that's a, you know, that's neither internal nor external. It's a relational property between the two, right? You're, right. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think that's a great, 
place to drop down and I'd like to explore this a bit more because we had, I think, this critique of the existentialist idea, mm. or, or at least some, um, I don't know, uh, perhaps I'm not giving um, that view enough credit, but it seems at least to have this, this common representation as the idea that we just choose our own values, we just mm. choose our own mm-hmm. goals. And there seems to be something somewhat lacking about that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'd like to, I'd love to say a bit more about like, why is it that we don't just choose what, what more is happening there? Yeah. Yeah. I think the answer to that is something to do with what kind of thing meaning is right. Mm-hmm. Um, meaning, meaning itself is a kind of because it because it's relative to a context, right? The meaning of a sentence depends on its context. The meaning of a life depends on its context as well. And what that what that means is that you can't just pick any random thing to be the meaning of your life, um, because not every not every random thing is going to be integrated integrated in the right way into your into your world. Um, there are, and I this is my my approach to this stuff when I'm, when I'm trying to sort this stuff out practically, actually, when I'm trying to trying to make actual decisions about how I should spend my tiny life, um, thinking about constraints on meaning has actually been very helpful for me. So mm-hmm. this is, this is what the existentialists don't give us. They don't give us any kind of like guidelines or ways of narrowing it down. And one of the reasons why you can't just pick any random thing to be the meaning of your life is that there are, I do think there are some constraints on what we can, what, what both hits us and maybe should hit us as meaningful to put a bit of a normative spin on this. So like, suppose I decide the meaning of my life is to end life on earth. Like I just, just want to just wreck everything. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think that works. I think, I don't think, I think that's a kind of self undermining meaning to your life because nobody gets to experience meaning unless there's some of us around to experience things. So you can't like one, the the condition for this is, this is a, a a fun trick that Kant teaches us. You can look at the, you can look at the conditions for the possibility of something. Mm -hmm. So I think, I think something to supplement maybe the existentialist and say something about why you can't just randomly pick a meaning for yourself is that there's lots of conditions for the possibility of meaning. Um, and amongst them are there being life. You just, you gotta be alive to have a meaning of life, pretty straightforward. So you can't make the meaning of your life to destroy all life because that's self undermining, right? That's, that's you're removing the condition for the possibility of the thing that you're trying to trying to get. I, I, I want to push back on that a little bit. Okay. Um, I, I, I like this idea that there are certain, you know, there's just certain, a certain structure to our existence in the world and we have to um, do some work to try and figure out what that is. Mm. Uh, I'm not sure that I'm fully on board with this idea that it's simply undermining that uh, our, ourselves mm. if we make it such that there is no life on its own, because mm. of course I'm going to die. Sure. So I, there will be no, nothing of my life left, you know, yeah. based on what I know when I die, does that mean that I'm just moving inexorably toward meaninglessness? Huh. I would hope that the answer is no. Um, right. And I, I guess I'm Good. curious about, Good. about what it is about this project of destroying life that intuitively we think 
makes it so meaningless. Mm. Like, mm. I don't know if you would agree with this. My tendency would be to say that in doing that, I have to cut myself off from mm. other uh, life, other existence like me to such an extent that it strongly undermines my ability to have a life that is fulfilling because I've become so isolated. Mm. And I, yeah, I'm wondering what, how you'd feel about that. If, if that's, that's great. Yeah. That's great. Um, I, yeah. So I, I, I don't, I don't think I can easily sort of like lay down rules about what is or isn't a valid, meaningful life. I don't, mm. I wish I had that. I wish I had that answer. So that was uh, I think you're, I think you're quite right that that's probably not just the simple self. You're, I think you're quite right, actually. Now that I think about it, you're the simple self undermining thing probably isn't enough of a story. But that actually brings up a couple other things that we could. I'm just I'm going to toss out some. So I'm I'm glad you're on board with the basic framework of thinking about constraints. Let me just toss some out there, and this is actually coming down to like what are or aren't the constraints is is a little bit beyond where I'm where I sort of like feel that I've got it all nailed down. So let's, sure. let's kick some stuff around. So you okay. can see what happens. So um, it sounds your, your suggestion that like the problem with destroying all life is actually that you cut yourself off from something. Um, mm -hmm. And I think it's reasonable to suppose that what you cut yourself off from is the kind of thing that you are. Um, mm -hmm. And for a human being, you know, so here's, here's maybe a constraint. You, the, you should find a you should find meaning in things that align with the kind of thing that you are. So if something is radically against the kind of thing that you are, then it's not going to be meaningful for you. So this, I mean, this I think is empirically well supported by the way that people find stuff meaningful when it's when they have they are fitted to the to the thing that they're doing. So there's a, there's a possibility, and when you think about the kind of things that we are, well, we're we're one of the most uh, social species on the planet. I mean, maybe ants are more social than us, but human beings are, um, are incredibly intensely social animals. We come, we become thinkers because of our sociability, right? So the, the variability to reflect on the meaningfulness of our lives or, uh, is dependent on having been brought up in some kind of culture. If you, if you have a feral human, they can't make sentences. Uh, it's not that they, I don't think that they would have a totally meaningless or valueless existence, but the degree to which they get to participate in constructing a meaningful life for themselves is, is greatly reduced, right? Um, mm -hmm. in, the, in the raised by wolves situation. So the kind of thing that we are is social and what you do when you decide to try to destroy the world is deny this the way that you are in some way ah, maybe hmm interesting okay um thinking about since we're thinking about i guess the structures that are hmm. limiting our capacity to create meaning out of life maybe this is an interesting point to to go back to the post-structuralists for a moment because hmm. this seems like a place where they might be useful. So who I'm thinking of at the moment is, uh, for example, uh, Jacques Lacan. He has an idea, I think, that's quite similar to this notion of Derrida's that you brought up, um, having to do with how uh, signification works in the human life. I'm going to give a very simplified account of this. I have this real problem whenever I try and discuss Lacan, personally, uh, in an academic context, that I have to give such a simplified account of it that the Lacanians will get mad at me. 
Um, but then if I, if I go any beyond that, then people, I just lose people. So I'm going to do my best and probably will, will be insufficient. But uh, so Lacan says that basically, you know, in some sense, we come into uh, language, like we're always born into the structures of language, what it means to be a conscious uh, being in the way that we are, is to be kind of embedded in what he would call this symbolic order. Um, one of the consequences of that, I guess, is that our lives are kind of um, structured like uh, an unfinished sentence mm. in a way. Mm. So we have uh, the f- this first signifier that uh, always comes up for us. This is uh, what he would call the master signifier, which is basically um, it can never have a final meaning because the sentence is never is never ended until our life finishes or even when our life finishes. We never know exactly what this first signifier is, is going to mean. And so you can put uh, all sorts of things in the place of this first signifier. So you can put things like God. You can put things like science. Um, you can put things like religion. You know, I'm a Christian. Um, and that would be sort of my, my master signifier, the thing that is starting the sentence for me. And so what we have to do then is we go along and we keep adding to this sentence. Uh, we're never going to have the final signifier that's going to tell us what we all mean, what it all means. But uh, we have certain points along the way, uh, what he would call quilting points, where we sort of put a punctuation. Mm. We pause the sentence. Mm. And so I can have a sentence that starts with science, but quilted in a particular way, such that science is meaning something different for me uh, than it would if I ended that, the sentence in another place. Mm. Um, so, I mean, it, it, to give basically just a, a very uh, facile example, science is a method, is a, is a very different sentence from saying, Science is a method that can tell us certain kinds of information about the world, mm. but not others. It's a sentence with a, you know, a, a very different meaning. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I guess that maybe one of the things that that is telling us is that we are maybe somewhat constrained about the sorts of things we can make meaning about, you know, because we kind of inherit in a way these um, these signifiers from our world, these starting signifiers, but Mm. we have a choice of sort of where in a sense we choose to pause and say, okay, this is the part that the version of that sentence that I'm going to work with for now. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. Where to drop the comma. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Something like that. That's fascinating. I I studied Lacan a little, but it's, it's all gone now. So that was, that was very interesting. And I was worried when you started um, that we were going to run up against another constraint, but you solved it for me with the with the quilting idea. So, um, and this is this is something that you, uh, in your response to my ending the world example, uh, brought up nicely, which is that probably everything ends and is going to like ed, you know if we're thinking about the meaning, like how to contribute meaningfully to the world if your vision of that is that it has to be something permanent and unchanging, that's probably not going to work out for you because 
in a billion years, the chances are that everything that we've ever said and done are going to be gone forever, right? So, mm-hmm. uh, if if we've learned, you know, insofar as we understand the physical world, it looks like nothing that we can do lasts. Um, mm-hmm. So, if you're going to find, here's another constraint in trying to find a meaningful life. It's got to be meaningful, not because it lasts forever, but because it was worth doing at the time. Um, mm. So the the meaning meaning has to keep coming, like out of the moment, rather than being a only present at the completion point, where mm-hmm. the sent the period finally drops and and you know what the whole sentence says, um, because even that completed sentence is going to get wiped off the blackboard sooner or later, right? Right. And in fact, um, in some sense, we never get to see what the completed sentence will be. It's right. right. So if we're thinking in terms of this m- metaphor of meaning, I know that you you said that you have a, a sort of issue with this idea that it is a metaphor, and maybe we can come back to that. Um, but for the moment, at least if we're thinking of, of meaning as this sort of metaphor of, of, of reading a sentence that, um, it, you know, there's this idea that I have to have the sentence has to be readable along the way. Like I have to be able to to make something out of it, at least between the punctuation points, even if what I've made out of it uh, is altered by what comes next. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And this this is maybe something another thing that is going to distinguish meaningfulness and purpose for us. Right. Then for something to be meaningful, there has to be this constant sense that I'm making some sense of of what's happening and not just that it's going to have, right. It's going to have some sense. It's right. going to all have this reward you right. know, eventually in the ultimately non-existent future. Yeah. 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 A, a purpose or a goal sort of uh, somewhat at least implies an end uh, that it's the process finishes and that's once you've achieved the purpose, then that's, that's what's good or something like that. Yeah. So I, I do want to go back and, ask about this question of uh you know the metaphor of of meaning as being like reading a sentence reading a book yeah and I'm curious I guess uh, just to dig in a little bit more about what you find insufficient about that metaphor well uh, it's 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 more like I I think that it's a it's just the literal it's the literal truth it's it it's hard to sometimes to sort it our metaphors for from our literal sentences. Um, Nietzsche says all of language is just metaphors that we forgot were metaphors. Mm-hmm. But um, I find it to be actually a, I don't, I don't see why it has to be a metaphor rather than just a literal description of what we're talking about. Because, you know, when you talk about the meaning of things, there's the, okay, so there's the meaning of the sentence, you know, the cat is on the mat. The, the truth value of that sentence, as philosophers would say, is, that there is a cat and there's a mat and the cat bears the on relation to the mat. Um, but that's not really, and, and in one sense, that's the meaning of that sentence. Um, mm-hmm. We might call that the denotation, right? You, some specific arrange, some, some sentences have the job of describing specific arrangement of objects of the world. And they're true if they just, if the objects in the world have that, have that arrangement. But that doesn't really clean out what people mean by the word meaning, right? We have other senses of it that I think are, are quite active and important here. So the, when we talk about the meaning of a sentence, very often what we, what we mean is something like this, its significance or its relevance to us. So again, mm-hmm. we're, I'm circling back to stuff that uh, uh, John Verveke talks about. Mm-hmm. I take it that one of, one of the most important things that our brains do 
is decide what's important. Mm-hmm. Um, and this this importance or relevance is something that we we kind of co-create with the world. Uh, you can't just sort of voluntarily decide anything that you put your eyes on is relevant. Um, but at the same time, it's not like relevance is out there in the world. Uh, it's this kind of joint product between you encountering the world through through a body, something like that. And I think sentences and paragraphs and novels and poems and paintings all have meaning in the sense that they have they strike us with a certain kind of relevance. They they seem important or um, significant. All just all just sort of like different ways of saying the same thing. And I see that very much as probably like literally biologically the same process as um, our sense of the meaningfulness of our experiences. So like the, the meaning of a poem or a painting is quite continuous with the meaning of an event in your life. Hmm. Um, you know, um, sometimes you read a sentence and it really strikes you, you know, it's, it's full of meaning. Um, you know, or a chapter of a book, and you're like, wow, that just, that just really resonated with me in, in this really, in this deep way, it strikes you as important. And you want to go pester people around you and be like, you go look at this, this is really important. It's really interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think events in your life can have the same, that same quality. Uh, my, mild depression from my, from my experience is mostly uh, you step out the door in the morning, you go, what? I don't, th- everything wasn't pointless yesterday. Was it? I felt like every mm-hmm. yesterday things, things seem significant or relevant or, or important. And now all of a sudden they don't, that's weird. Uh, must be, must be depressed again. Um, so this, mm-hmm. this sense that we have of, ah, the world is relevant or, or parts of the world strike us as relevant. I think mm-hmm. is actually very, very similar to the ways in which a painting, a poem, a sentence, a word can strike us as relevant. You know, it's not meaning in the sense of like description of objects in the world. It's meaning in the sense of the way that it hits you as important or relevant. Um, okay. So that's the, that's the sort of what I, what I think of as the literal continuity between the use of meaning in, in those, in those contexts. Okay. So one of the things that it seems to me like you're saying that, that I want to hone in on and I'm slightly rephrasing your, your point here. So you'll have to let me know if this is fair. Uh, but I want to say that there's this sense that what it means for a sentence to be meaningful is not captured by its truth value or its ability to represent something in the world. Um, for example, what the sentence the cat is on the mat means to me uh, is given not only by you know the fact that there is a cat and it's it's on a mat yes or no but for example you know there's a rhyme in that sentence it has Mm -hmm. a certain sensuous quality the cat is on the mat it has a degree of symmetry to it and there are sorts of things like that, maybe not the exact same thing. I'm not saying necessarily that life literally rhymes, but uh, we're maybe getting at something that there's this maybe sensuous sort of other quality to life um, that is not uh, not captured by a particular definition of meaning as just being related to like truth value or representation. 
Am I yeah. getting that right? Is there anything you would add to that or clarify? I think that's I think that's that's exactly right. Yeah, yeah. That uh, yeah. There's there's the, there's the sensuous. I think there's a whole bunch of stuff. You so you highlighted the sensuous quality of the sentence. That's that's one of the parts of its sort of broader sense of meaning. Um, I think yeah. There's I think there's a whole bunch of factors like that. Like is it is it your cat? Is it your mat? Is this a funny thing that the cat does regularly? Is this a running joke between you and your friends? Is this a mm -hmm. You know, is this a scary, you, know, you can imagine contexts in which that would be scary. Like, oh my God, the cat is on the mat. Um, you can imagine all kinds of contexts that would shift how that struck you at, that's how that sentence, maybe even said the exact, with the exact same intonation would, would hit you as in terms of what that, what that means to you. So when we're thinking about life, you know, we talk about the meaning of life and maybe you should distinguish that from the, I mean, I said before, Viktor Frankl's got this bottom up model of the meaning of life. You know, when you when you say when you produce a sentence, its meaning is is partly generated by the the paragraph that it's in or the the conversation that it's in, mm -hmm. and that whole conversation partly gets its meaning from the day that it happened on, and the person that it happened with, and that day and that relationship get their meaning from, and on and on and on. Right? You can see this sort of like spreading process of meaning making being embedded in larger meaning making being embedded in larger meaning making until you get to your whole life and then we're a little stumped right it's it's sort of like the it's sort of like the problem of all of my organs having purposes but me not having one what we we seem to we seem to be a little stumped these days about how to do that last step of integrating the meaning of all the parts of your life into some larger whole and mm. i i do think religion used to have that job so they would you know in very narrative ways, they would work your life into this ongoing story of the universe. So that last step was sort of taken care of. You know, here here are the myths that form the background of of the whole the whole life that you're living. So there's no you don't stumble on that. If you have a religion that's a good religion, I think you don't stumble on that last step of integrating the overall meaning of your life into something larger than itself. Um, but if you're a scientific materialist, you might, you might stumble at that point. You might have a bunch of sort of individual experiences in your life that were like, yeah, that was good times. That was, that was super, that was not just fun, but felt important. But then if you start wondering like, okay, so why did I think that was important? What larger story is that importance embedded in? In the same way that every small part of a book is embedded in a larger part and it's embedded in a literary tradition and so on and so on. So you might, when you start probing in those larger structures, it, it is this terrifying, in my experience, threat of the whole thing coming crashing down mm -hmm. um, because the, you know, the meaningfulness, the relevance is always relating to the larger context. And you hit a, in a, in a pure scientific materialist mechanist way of seeing the world you hit a kind of wall at the, at the sum total of a human life, or maybe at the sum total of all human life mm -hmm. that makes the whole, th to, I think the, the emotional experience of it at least is to say it threatens to knock the whole thing down again, uh, to mm -hmm. tumble down the levels of, of being to the, to make e even your everyday existence feel meaningless. So what is necessary for my experience to be meaningful? Mm. For example, it's not simply necessary that uh, I'm able to think ab about it. You know, mm. I think therefore I am 
mm-hmm. is not really where we're at right now. Mm. We sort of seem to be moving towards this position where we say in order to have what we think of as a full experience um, and what we think of as, as sort of proper consciousness and maybe even meaningful consciousness mm. is that there are all these other components um, you know really beyond anything that we would think of as being in terms of producing like I want to say like explicit meaning mm. so explicit meaning sort of the the sense that I have of, of being able to represent certain things with my speech or thought is maybe only a fraction of the you know huge amount of implicit meaning that is sort of a part of mm-hmm. uh, my experience and, and what I need in order to have things be meaningful for me. Yeah, yeah, I think that's I think that's exactly right. Um, what you said just about implicit and explicit meaning. Uh, I think there's a really nice example from Brian Cantwell Smith, who's this uh, cognitive scientist at U of T, uh, and he talks about the kind of like deep almost subperceptual halo that that is ringed around all of our representations so you know you can get a computer to represent things in the sense that there's a token standing for the thing somewhere in the computer but he's really critical of that as a as a complete picture of how the mind works and he says just imagine um you suddenly lose your vision and the person in the pack passenger well you're driving a car and you suddenly stop being able to see and the person beside you says don't worry i'll tell you when to turn left and right Mm-hmm. Like, you, like you can accurately represent to the person whether they should turn left right slow, slow down or speed up but would that be sufficient for you as a as a sort of like oh yes the representations are doing all all the work that i was worried about here probably, probably not probably not right you're it's it's the way that you're sort of dynamically embedded in the system that that makes you that lets you skillfully interact with it so it's and all that stuff is. I mean, it's it's hard to nail down what all that extra stuff that goes into meaning is, because it goes beyond the explicit meaning or the representational meaning that we're that we can relatively well nail down and describe. It's all that. It's this. It's this vast halo of extra information that we're swimming in all the time, but can't necessarily say out loud or something like that. That's a very interesting point. And I think um, perhaps it's a nice point for us to end on uh, sense of encountering. I guess it's not exactly the numinous, uh, <laughs> but something at least um, uh, uh, glowing out from beyond, uh, you know, what we typically uh, think of as, I guess, our, our representations of experience. Um, so just as we wrap up, I want to ask you if there's any last words you want to give us or any projects that uh, you'd like to let our listeners know about anything you're working on right now, anything you're excited about? Yeah. Just stuff like that. Yeah. I mean, in terms of last words, I don't, I don't know. Um, uh, don't, don't give up on meaning. Uh, it's I, <clears throat> I feel lucky to have had a life that I've experienced as fairly vividly meaningful. So I know it's not impossible at least to have this as a psychological experience. And I've, I mean, having having gone deep into the philosophy of science, I don't think that it's impossible to reconcile that with a secular worldview or or a, or a, a kind of relatively materialistic worldview. So that's 
that's my my recommendation is this isn't this isn't something that we should necessarily or easily or flippantly give up on in terms of projects that i'm working on i'm whipping up some courses for september to teach at the institute for history and philosophy of science and technology i think i think they're all booked up um so unfortunately uh oh well, actually there's still space in introduction to history in hps 100 intro to history and philosophy of science and hps 200 science and values where we'll talk about uh, actually quite a lot about these issues um so or not exactly these issues but these these questions of how science and values interact hmm. other than that i mean yeah i'm i've been thinking about how this stuff works in ai and what it would take for an artificial intelligence to be for example something that would we need to worry about morally and i i wonder if meaning making is the thing um so that's a that's a strain of this that's been that i've been doing some thinking and research on so yeah. very cool and i would add on your behalf for your potential students that you have a youtube channel where uh some of these lectures have been uploaded so maybe if people are thinking about taking for example uh this introductory class i i believe there are our videos of that up that uh, I've seen a bit of. Uh, I think they're really wonderful. Uh, oh, and yeah, I would encourage people to go and check out that channel and hear you talk more. So what is the name of that channel? Uh, so it's just called Corey Lewis. If you Google Corey Lewis, I, I should show up on YouTube. Okay. Uh, and yeah, there's a, there's a bunch of courses. There's a, a introduction to cognitive science where a lot of the issues that we've talked about today are gone into in quite a bit of depth. I'm just performing John Verveke's material in that, but um, I think it's a, I think it's a, a good intro to that. And uh, Science and Values also deals with a bunch of stuff about how we sort of frame and interpret the world. Okay, fantastic. Thank you so much, Corey, for having this conversation. It's been a real pleasure, and I hope that we will continue to see you around. Thank you. Me too.